Welcome to Respect Life Radio. This is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And our special guest today is Dr. David Devil, editor of Logos and also assistant professor of Catholic Studies at St. Thomas up in Minnesota. And uh, our topic today is going to be socialism and how Catholicism and socialism do not go together, contrary to what we hear uh, in the world today. So, Dr. Devil, I appreciate you uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I've, you know, I've heard you on other podcasts, and I've read several of your articles, most notably The Seven Deadly Sins of Socialism and uh, also The Three Mistakes Catholics Make When They Flirt with Socialism. But can you talk about what socialism is at its core, and then we can kind of move on from there? Yeah, I think a lot of people today say they're attracted to socialism, and what they mean by that is a fairly large um, <laughs> a state uh, benefit system, a kind of large welfare state. But when we're really talking about socialism, what we're talking about is a society in which basically most things uh, are run or owned by the people, uh, usually meaning the, the state through cooperatives. Um, and there's a lack of, pri- of private property rights and a lack of ability to actually make any sort of economic initiative. And usually in, in most so- socialist societies, this is written, sort of written into the cake, not only in, in writers, 19th century writers like Marx, but other utopian socialists. The family is usually not acknowledged as the center of society or even as a, an institution that has a lot of rights. So, it's almost like a cog in the machine, right? Yeah, that's right. I think I think for for most socialists, uh, they they think in terms of the individual and the state. And if you have those two, the state is obviously the bigger one and the more important one. And uh, you, you know that's that's just the way it goes. George Orwell, you know, famously uh, asked the question because people said, well, you know, you know, you have to crack a lot of eggs to make an omelet, and they were usually <laughs> referring to socialism. And and he you know, his famous question is. Well, where's the omelet? So you had mentioned Marx and different things. And so does, comp, does socialism, I know in the past, whether it's, you know, in in Europe or Russia or whatever, we've seen socialism lead to communism. Is that a step along the way or is that just a fallacy? And no, I think that it is. Uh, I think a lot of people, th- and you'll hear this often, well, I'm just talking about socialism or, you know, uh, you'll hear this a lot today too. Well, I'm just talking about democratic socialism, and they se- seem to think that there's a sort of a stopping point. But I think that the reality is that once you acknowledge that the state has that much power over all areas of society, including church and family and economic initiative, there's really not much. Uh, there's not much that can stop the uh, the action. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great you know Russian Nobel laureate, you know he he talked about this because people would say this to him that well you know, you you can sort of stop at a sort of moderate or democratic socialism. But he said, but once you go down that road, people are going to compete to be more and more extreme. And so he said, socialism does end up becoming just a way station to communism. And, you know, we see, you know, the the debacle that's going on in Venezuela. And we hear you mentioned the democratic socialists. Oh, well, we're not going to be that kind of socialism. Yeah. We want to we want to be more like the Nordic countries. Uh, right. Which have actually changed anyway. They're not really what they say they are. But is is Venezuela a good example of you know kind of where socialism leads you? 
I think it is. Um, you have you end up having the same uh, lack of goods and services and the same lack of real community there that you have in almost all of the other socialist experiments. A lot of people are saying, oh, well, it's not really and truly socialist. But the reality is only a few years ago, all the leading <laughs> – all the leading figures who are who are pushing in a socialist direction today, such as Jeremy Corbyn in the, in the United Kingdom, and Bernie Sanders here, they were all saying that 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 Venezuela was, was a good model. But now that it's turned south, now they now they don't really want to want to talk about it so much. So I find that this is it's a little bit difficult, uh, you know, to evaluate these claims about what is and isn't socialism because. It always seems to be socialism until it doesn't work out, and then it turns out to have been a, you know, a subtle fraud. Right, and by that point, the people that started it are long gone anyway, and so right. somebody else left holding the bag. Yeah, I mean, the reality is I think it's always a fraud because in almost every socialist system, you're going to end up with one group of people who are in the government, who are running things on behalf of the people, you know, what what – what Lenin called the vanguard of the proletariat, the people who are out front, you know, you know, making sure that they take care of things for the people, and they're going to end up having having the power and the money for themselves. So I think, you know, in a way, socialism is ultimately ends up being a grift because the people in charge, you know, come to not really believe in it, and the true believers are often left behind. So right, and once you get the power, who wants to relinquish power? Right, right. It, you know, Lord Acton's famous line that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is just right. really too true. And and it works and it's true in every system, but it's particularly true in a system where you've started from the premise that all of the things on the on the ground such as family and and uh you know, other sorts of groups and of course the church as well really have no say in life and that really there is nothing between the individual and the state. Right, and you know we see you know the Nazi movement was a socialist movement, wasn't it? That's correct. I mean, the the only difference you know between them, I mean, Nazi was a, a sort of shortened form of national socialism. Right. And this, you know, the same goes with uh, the fascists of Italy. They were all inspired. Antonio Gramsci, the the sort of the founding thinker of fascism, was a Marxian scholar, and so the only difference they have is that they want to sort of organize things on the national level. But in the case of, of Nazi Germany, of course, if you're wanting to conquer the world, it kind of ends up be, being a distinction without a difference if, if your nation is, is meant to, to run the international. So they're, they're really doing the, uh, the same sorts of things. And people like to deny this, but if you go back and look at what their platforms were, you know, they, they were not all about Jews. They certainly had that going the the sort of the conspiracy theory and the hatred for for uh, you know God's Old Testament people but right. they also had a lot of the the planks in it were were essentially socialist uh planks uh in in their party uh you know party documents and they they bragged about how they were they were actually doing the things that the communists really you know really weren't doing so as it turns out both of them were in the same game so well, and it wasn't only the Jews, right? Then the church stood in the way because the church didn't agree with socialism. So then you got to get rid of people in the church. That's correct. I mean, the uh, you know Pope Pius XI uh, wrote his famous, I think it's 1937. He, he released it, Mit Brennen der Sorge, his with you know with burning passion, uh, one of those few encyclicals that was actually not written in Latin but written in German, <laughs> right? To, to you know to to criticize 
the uh, the the Nazi regime, both for its its uh, race-based hatred, but also for its hatred for the church, and and that is indeed what we saw. Is that there were a lot of people who were in prison, not because they were Jews, but also because they were were priests. Saint Maximilian Kolbe is a is a great example. Right, Saint Edith Stein. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, when you look at particularly in the Soviet example, I mean, Lenin Lenin said it very explicitly that there was absolutely he couldn't accept any kind of ethics, whether it meant a, a, a religious ethics, certainly not. Right. Uh, but he couldn't even accept a kind of generic ethics with principles that were abstract in general, because they implied that there was something that stood over and above the state. And for them, uh, you know, it was, there was, uh, well, I mean, to quote Gramsci again, there's, you know, nothing outside of the state, everything inside the state. And so there, it's a setup. It's, I mean, we can say it, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, Christian teaching. I mean, it's really a, a, a primal form of idolatry, and it's something that, that the church fought against in the very beginning. Um, you know, the, when uh, St. Paul says, you know, anyone who says that Jesus Christ is Lord, <laughs> right, is, is, is part of the body, Right. And scholars seem to think that that was an, kind of the original version of the creed. And why it was so controversial was that, it, you know, Jesus Christ isn't Lord, the emperor is Lord. And, right. And so it kind of usurping the emperor's power, and nobody likes that. Right. And socialism seems to set that up as a doctrine as well, that the state is, is ultimately the god. And many people have commented, you see the sort of the religious aspects of that. Anytime you set up a socialist society, they... No, we'd like to, th- you know, we'd like to think that, oh well, it's a, that's a kind of secular ideal. But they understood that nobody is motivated by, you know, generic concepts about, you know, the uh, Hegelian notion of how history is, you know, spirit bringing to itself matter, blah blah blah. I mean, what they know is people want to, people want to worship. We're inherently religious beings, and so they always set, set up a kind of ersatz religion. Well, and you go right after the first commandment, right? Why, why, why go down the list? Let's tackle the first one first and try to get rid of it. That's correct. That's correct. We, they have to get rid of that because, you know, as I said, Lenin understood this, that any kind of idea that implied that there was something judging the state it, it had to be disregarded. And, and we know that that's, that's not true. I mean, our great heroes here in America who fought for civil rights, Martin Luther King, for instance, they had to, they appealed to what to natural law. I mean, when right. they letter to Birmingham jail, uh, you know, King actually you know cites Augustine and Aquinas and says that an unjust law is no law at all, and that and that implies that there is this this judging feature. The natural law, right? God's law stands above and says no. The state is not everything, but instead it is it is only uh, a minister for God's good, and that's why you have you know medieval thinkers, including Thomas. Uh, Aquinas asking the question, you know, in what situation is it right to depose a king? John of Salisbury, uh, right? Asking, you know, uh, you know, in what situation can you even, you know, assassinate the king? Now, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to you know, <laughs> give a kind of conspiracy theory, right? Here, right. These sorts of things, but but it's the notion that uh, that authority is under God, and that there are uh, there are times when that authority needs to be opposed, and and that could be by by uh, nonviolent means, as King did, or it might need to be through taking up arms. But the point is, the reason for that is, is that that the King is not God. God is the King. 
Right. And it seems like, you know, this is almost like a Robin Hood theory, right? We're going to we're going to steal from the rich and give to the poor. But what yeah. what makes it so popular? And you work with young people. I mean, you're yeah. up there at a university and, you know, you see the polls and 50 percent of the people think socialism's OK or whatever it is when you see right. the different polls. Why are young people so attracted to it? Well, as I said, I think a lot of them think of it simply in terms of that welfare state ideal. And they've been taught that, well, you know, everything, you know, everything works better in Sweden or something like that. And what they don't understand is that those Nordic countries actually did have fairly socialist arrangements in the 1970s. But what they led to was, you know, absolute stagnation. So many of them had to open up their economies yeah. in, order to, in order to keep up their large welfare state. And I always tell students, look, if you think, you, you know, if you think this kind of a, a large welfare state is a good, and I think that there are problems with it, I mean, that's fine, but we have to be honest about what kinds of levels of taxation can support it. We also have to be honest about the fact that, uh, particularly in large countries, but even in small ones, the difficulty with it is that when you have the state uh, providing all of these means, what you have are these middle actors uh, who end up taking up a lot of the money. So, you know, what you think that you're getting with a large welfare state is not necessarily great care for the people on the ground, but it does provide, you know, very good jobs for people who want to want to do government jobs. I think that's what I think that's what young people are attracted to. When you ask them then, you know, different questions, there's a lot of polling on this, but when you ask them those questions about, you know, quashing the family or, you know, stopping people from starting jobs or these sorts of things, right. they they get a little bit they get a little bit worried about that, but I think they think of socialism as just, uh, you know, the great big nanny state providing things and i think that that's what they're attracted to and they don't think about the question of well in order to redistribute all of this stuff in this sort of robin hood fashion you have to kind of be above and be have the power to take that stuff away to to give it to somebody else and eventually you run out of stuff to take right i mean wealth wealth isn't infinite and once you take it all then what do you do that that's correct. I mean, we you know you can talk about uh, you know you can say that look some limits of scarcity are artificial, um, and that really an economy is not simply a fixed pie, but when you but when you take start taking things away, what that takes away is the incentive for people to be creative about making their own uh, making their own businesses and thinking about how you can expand that economy. So even even if in an elastic pie of stuff. Right. Uh, when the government starts taking that, that takes away the incentive of people to do th- do things in the market and outside of the market, for that matter, that uh, that don't that don't actually bring any reward. Uh, you know, I mean, I have a, I have kids, and you know, one of them says, "Well, why don't we get rid of money, and why don't we get rid of ownership, and you know, everybody will just sort of take what they need." And, and right. I keep asking him, you know, but but then why on earth would anybody, you know, go to the work of doing these difficult tasks of, you know, building things or making things? You know, yeah, just go to the go to the free go to the free market. Right. Take it. I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, when people when things are free, we all know what happens. You know, everybody starts. Well, I'll take I'll take five or six of those, and then pretty soon it's gone. Well, that's kind of the candy that leads people into it, isn't it? Hey, how about free education? Hey, how about free health care? They never think about, geez, when I actually start working, then how much of my salary are they going to take for this free stuff? That's correct. I, I think what the, the difficulty is that many of them have sort of learned that profit itself is bad and money itself is bad. 
And the the reality is is that profit is something that you know they'll, they'll say that especially with, well, I can't believe we could make uh, profit a motive in healthcare. I mean, that's just you know that's too <laughs> sacred. And I think well. But you know, who's going to provide this health care? Because it's not always pleasant to be a doctor or nurse. The distinction right. is, you know, it, it's not that we can get rid of profit. It's just that we have to put that in a in a bigger context, and it can't be the sole writing, you know, sole, uh, you know, goal that we have for any business is profit. Uh, I teach sometimes a document. Uh, some of my colleagues were involved in in drafting it. Uh, the vocation of the business leader put out by the Pontifical Council for uh, Peace and Justice a few okay. years ago. Yeah, and and it's very good about identifying three three goals of businesses, and they are good goods. That is, you have to have a service or a good that actually meets human needs or human desires that are not bad. You have to have good work that provides, uh, you know, dignified labor that helps develop the person and respects their dignity as well as gives them, you know, a, a way to make a living. And then you have to have the good money, which is the wages uh, that are provided to the workers as well as a return on investment for, for other people who are not able to work but put their money into something else. When you have a, a sort of a bigger picture like this, you say, well, yeah, you do need good money, <laughs> right? But right. it's in this context of, of goods, services, and 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 work that respects the human person, and I think many people are are sort of tricked by the fact that you can go wrong in one way, <laughs> and they don't mm-hmm. think you can go wrong in the other way, and overemphasize some other aspect of it to it, you know, to the detriment of of society. Well, and you just described a case where that's success, right? I mean, and people right. do that, and they tend to be successful when they that's do that. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of aspects of, of market economies, and I think that's why you know, the Catholic social tradition has largely been open to market economies within a strong juridical framework and with the caveat that, look, they can go bad if the culture around them goes bad. Uh, why is that? Because it allows, you know, John Paul II said in Centesimus Annus, his 1991 encyclical, that one of the things that's needed for poor people is that they can enter in to the circle of exchange. And when you enter into that circle of exchange, profit's going to be a part of that. But in order to succeed in it, you have to be meeting people's needs, both your consumers as well as the people who are investing and working for you as well. And when you have that balance, uh, you know, I think people, you know, I think people are not as attracted to these sort of, you know, uh, wild-eyed socialist ideals when they see that no, this this can actually work. But the trick is, of course, Having a good good legal and uh, political framework, as well as most importantly, having a culture in which the right things are valued, is present. Well, and that's what we struggle with right now. We have a culture that isn't right. We have a culture that's trying right. to eliminate God from the scene, yeah. and then all of a sudden you eliminate God. Well, now, gee, socialism has to come in because somebody has to fill the void. That's right. That's right. I mean, and you know, the the reality is that you know Solzhenitsyn uh, in his his famous uh, Harvard address, you know, said that the reason that things have gone south, you know, both <laughs> both at you know at that time in the the socialist East, but as well as in the capitalist West, is that men have forgotten God. And the reality is, you know, when that when that goes wrong, you can certainly have you know a bit of cultural capital that will keep you going, but eventually people are going to be unhappy. They're going to feel empty, and they're going to seek a new God. And I think that's really what the socialist impulse is is 
we need somebody to whom we can, you know, cast a little bit of incense. And, and you know, socialism promises a lot of things because it pro- promises things that are, that are godlike. Right, and and doesn't deliver, but people buy it because hey, I'm getting free stuff, and that's working. And yeah. you know, the, the other piece is, you know, it really it, it really is a class warfare thing, right? Let's 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 demonize those with money, uh, even if they've earned it, and and do you know share it and do whatever, and let's let's look out for the little guy. It's almost the Saul Alinsky playbook of community organizing. That's correct. I think what it does is it it, it emphasizes uh, you know all of the divisions that we have, and instead of urging people to actually think about how they can overcome those divisions, um, it says, well, now we're going to get get you know we're going to get that bad guy. Right. And the problem with that is is that we can all be bad guys depending upon the situation. Um, you know, I think I think there's in the long Catholic intellectual tradition there's certainly an emphasis on on that we all have to have on being free from attachment to goods and power, but there's also an emphasis that I think is underappreciated of, uh, you know, of uh, the kind of duty of aristocrats. And by aristocrats, I don't mean hereditary aristocrats either, but for those in power, to them who have been given much, much shall be required. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if we would push that harder with people and, uh, you know, and encourage business leaders to think about those three levels of goods and push those who have money to think about what they invest in and what kinds of what kinds of uh, charities that they give to, I think that that's a much healthier thing than encouraging class warfare. Because you realize uh, if, after a while that, you know, the, the true enemy is not really those people. Um, we're fighting a, a kind of a spiritual battle and a, and a, a social battle but not against people, but against a kind of spirit, and and indeed, really spirits as well. Right. Well, when you're living in a moral, morally relativistic society, then everything goes right. I mean, there, yeah. there is no God, and, and now you can create things like this because that's what feels good. And you know what? I'll sell it. I'll give out free stuff. I'll lure people in, and you know, by the time they realize what's going on, it'll be too late. Yeah, yeah. And when you don't have that safeguard of the idea of you know, being under under nature's God or or any of that other stuff, it, it really is a, a potent potent <laughs> uh, toxic you know brew that you're you're bringing to people. Well, and we see it. You know, with you you mentioned Bernie Sanders. There's you know the uh, Alicia Ocasio Cortezes of the world. You know, coming up trying to you know bandwagon this stuff. And you said it before. You know, it's under democratic socialist. So if I change the title, it'll sound better. Right, right, and I, I think that that's it's a real mistake. I mean, it's it may be true to say that many of the things that some of these folks have been have been pushing are within the mainstream, and and certainly the Catholic social tradition is is fairly open and flexible. I like to emphasize when I teach things about Catholic social teaching that clearly the Church doesn't provide models for everything, but what it does do is it does. It does give us some warning signs that not every sort of governmental or economic arrangement can really be fit under the umbrella. We can certainly argue about, you know, what kind of benefits to give and and things like that. And I I think there are good questions to be asked about what kind of regulations we should have for businesses and for work. Um, but you know, <laughs> but the reality is when many of these people are thinking about very large uh, chunks of the economy, which then become under the control of the government and i think that that's a great danger because they're going to claim 
authority then over our religious lives as well. And we kind of see that. And this is not to say that the government is the only enemy. I think we've seen over the last, you know, couple of decades that, you know, large corporations, especially when they when they know that they can get high places and they can, you know, have this sort of cronyist relationship with political power, they're certainly willing to enforce things uh, against uh, believing Christians and Jews and even Muslims <laughs> when they can. So, I mean, there's there are large dangers here, uh, but simply adding these uh, nice little adjectives, I think, doesn't really solve the problem. No, it doesn't. And to think, you know, we're, we're talking about a government that can't run a post office without losing billions of dollars. To think that they could all of a sudden run everything is, right. is almost comical. Right. I mean, you know, this is the thing is that, you know, you think about how poorly many of these services are run, and then you think you want them you want them to run your lives? I, I really don't <laughs> think so. I mean, the reality is, is that people are pretty smart. Uh, they know how to... You know, we know how to shop for, you know, car insurance and things like that. And so, for instance, in the healthcare, you'll often hear the claim that, well, people can't be, you know, can't be, can't be allowed to do this because they won't be able to figure out what kinds of, you know, what are the best deals for, for insurance or the best kinds of plans. And I, I always think, well, we do for so many other aspects of life. <laughs> it's only in these areas in which there's really heavy, a heavy governmental hand and particularly uh, that government acting as a kind of middleman in terms of the money. And, you know, my field, higher education, is very much like healthcare, where you see uh, the cost of living <laughs> and, the, you know, the, the consumer price index are going along at a fairly steady clip, but costs in, in healthcare and education, where you have heavy, heavy government hand, they become extremely expensive. And so then you you think when people tar- start talking about free college for all or free healthcare, we think, well, we've already got enough help now, and it's making <laughs> making costs. And it's not a sort of anti-government position. The ca- you know, Catholic teaching is not that government is the sort of interloper that, uh, you know, or something that you can only do based on the consent. You know, I mean, the consent of the governed is important, but you're going to have a government. That's a sort of natural aspect of it. Right. The question is, what what is the job of that government? What is it supposed to do? And I think you know we we have some good we have some good ideas that we've seen from history that uh you know defense of the realm and m- making sure that there's order providing some basic uh opportunity for the distribution of truly common goods uh you know like water and air and things you know those things are are things within the government's ability to do um when it starts to do a lot more i think there's a lot of evidence that a it can't do it and B, what it what it leads to is it leads to people being uh, less less interdependent uh, among themselves, and also less dependent on God. And I think I think that's a real problem. <laughs>